Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Before we kick off the podcast today, just want to give you an update on where we're at with the book. Uh, we're starting to roll out book tour stops. You can go to our website, strongtowns.org, and get those. There's going to be a lot more coming in the coming weeks. I think we've got like five or six up. There's going to be like 60 by the time we're done going through the fall. I've also been away a little bit on the podcast, had a couple of weeks of other things going on, but we're kicking back in now with a series that is going to try to bring in people who have been influential to me and people whose work I've included in the book. And the person we're going to chat with today, Ann Sussman, uh, had a huge oversized impact on the way that I uh, view things. In fact, as I was piecing things together, there were some just missing threads and Ann's work connected those. And so this is a huge thrill for me to be able to do a podcast with her and share her thoughts and insights and ideas with you. So thanks everybody and enjoy the show. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. One of my top books from last year is a book called Cognitive Architecture, Designing for How We Respond to the Built Environment. I read an article from Ann Sussman and Katie Chen back in 2017 called The Mental Disorders That Gave Us Modern Architecture. And it blew my mind. It blew my mind. And I had to get the book and I read the book and I have purchased this book for more people than I can think of. I, I constantly buy it for people and hand it out because it's a fantastic book. One that blew my mind. I've been wanting to, for a long time, have one of the authors of this book, Ann Sussman, on to chat about it. And we are here today to talk. Anne is an architect. Uh, she works as an artist, writer, community organizer, and it says that uh, you live in Concord, Massachusetts. Is that where you're at today, Anne? Yeah, I'm sitting here today. Welcome to the Strong Downs Podcast. It's so nice to chat with you. Great to chat with you, too. And thank you so much for all your work bringing us together to live in strong communities. It's so important. Well, thank you. I want to talk about, first, the cognition side of this, because I think our audience is probably going to be more familiar with the architecture side of cognitive architecture. But there's a whole kind of brain science thing that I think is not common knowledge amongst planners, designers, engineers, advocates, people who live in cities. Can you just give us a little bit of a background on what you mean by the cognitive side of this and why that's so important to how we interact with the world around us? I can't believe you nailed the first question. That's amazing. It's <laughs> absolutely amazing. That's the 21st century paradigm shift for architecture and planning. The issue we face is that the advertising world, the car design world, the business school world, the, the web design world, they're all designing for the unconscious brain. They all know um, that humans don't see reality, but a representation of reality. And they're designing for this unconscious brain that in architecture school, I never even learned we had. <laughs> right, right. I'm a licensed architect. And to become licensed in the United States of America, no psychology requirement, no biology requirement, no evolution requirement, no cognition requirement. And that's simply not the way any other design field works. Part of our role, part of your role, <laughs> is to help move us into the 21st century and understanding that, that the cognition is an artifact of evolution and that our unconscious processing determines how we see architecture in the world around us. Car designers certainly know that. And you see that in that cars um, often have a smiley face on their front grille or um, their cars got meaner in 2008. Car companies design to the mood. They design to the perspective, the mood that the uh, prospective buyer might want to have when they buy their car. So they're very, very clever. They really understand human cognition. So what we need to do to bring architecture and planning into the into the 21st century is really to design for who we are, which is an artifact of evolution that's really influenced by emotional experience and by things like looking at a happy face. <laughs> I want to ask you an offbeat question, but I think it will get us somewhere where we need to go. Why do people see Elvis in like burnt toast? And why do they see the Virgin Mary in like cloud formations? What, what's going on there that brings that about? 
Right. That's the pareidolia phenomenon. And that is, again, we, we see faces where there aren't any. It has an evolutionary advantage when you think about it, because when we were on the savanna, uh, most of our, our lives, we were in the wild. Uh, modern life is very modern. Being able to see something that could be a face could be advantageous. I mean, if you mistake uh, two pebbles and a blade of grass and not for a face, or you may, maybe it's a snake. You don't know. If you think it's a snake, you probably will more likely to survive because maybe it is a snake. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Pareidolia has a survival advantage. So we see a man on the moon. There isn't one, but our brain is hardwired to see that. This is the amazing thing. Seeing faces, because we are a social creature and because cognition is a social relational thing, um, seeing faces is so important for us. So that's what's so interesting about architecture is up until like 1920, all buildings always had faces in them. You could feel the school building was looking at you. The church would have faces and they'd have statues of people with faces on them on the building. It's because that's what a social species is hardwired to see. Is there something like comforting for us in that reflex? Oh, I can't believe you said that. That is so amazing. Um, actually, a baby from the instant of birth, the way the nervous system is hardwired, it's called the vagus nerve, by seeing the face, by the face mirroring the baby's face, the baby calms. We have this nerve, mammals have the nerve, reptiles don't have it, that makes us social and it's connected to, from the eye to the gut to calm us down when we see a face. It's kind of insane. But when you start looking at it, you realize something amazing, that it's our ancient brain architecture that's Pleistocene, hasn't changed for 30,000 years, that really drives our experience of architecture. Architecture doesn't drive our experience of architecture. Our ancient brain architecture, which is hardwired, the most important thing for the human brain to see is the face. Hardwired for faces. That's what drives our experience of architecture. And that's why I can do something totally crazy. At 16, my parents took me to, say, to see the Taj Mahal, I didn't know anything about India or Hinduism or Muslim religion. I was blown away. How could that be? The building suggests a faith. You know, I didn't know. Why would it work on me? It was built 500 years ago, 400 years ago. Makes no sense. Makes perfect sense because it reflects what the brain architecture in me most needs to see for survival. We don't have a modern brain. And that's a hard thing to kind of come to grips with. <laughs> it's utterly fascinating because like you say, in things like behavioral economics, we're starting to grasp that, you know, humans are not totally rational people. We do crazy things. We're able to explain them after the fact rationally, but those explanations themselves are kind of crazy too, because there's stuff wired in there. Kind of spooky wiring is the way I've described it. I recognize the way mice scurry along the edge of a wall and don't cross over the middle. I recognize that behavior and I kind of attribute it to mice and to rodents and to species like that. You talk about in your book this in relation to humans and in the way we design cities and, and lay them out. Can you talk about that predisposition and, and even how ancient that is? Well, yeah, that's so interesting too. So just like we have a huge face bias, which really determines uh, what people need to see in architecture, we also are thigmatactic. That means we're a wall-hugging species. And most mammals are thigmatactic. Mice are thigmatactic. Um, if you talk to a landlord in, in downtown Boston, they'll never put the mice or rat trap in the center of the basement floor. They'll always put it at the edge. That's where the mice will be. And I always tell my students to sometimes like watch where people are in a bar or in a cafe in Boston. Where do they go sit? And it's amazing how their brains are directing them to sit at the edge of the bar or the edge in the restaurant and the central seats get filled in last. And the reason that is, is our brain wants us to feel safe and comfortable. And because we don't have eyes in the back of our head, we'll feel able more to relax and engage in conversation if we're covered, if you know we're against that edge. It's so interesting in some cultures like France, it's always polite in a cafe to give the woman the bench seat and the man takes the outside. So it's very interesting. And in a way, a woman is smaller, would feel more comfortable with her back protected. In the book you talked about, and I can't remember what the microorganism was, but basically in, in water, these microorganisms that we'd see under a, uh, under a microscope actually exhibit this behavior as well. Yeah, thigmatactic. I think it was zebra fish or something like that. Yeah, fish are also thigmatactic. That it just, it's, it's a, I even see it in my cat when it's outside. It'll go along the edge. It'll find the edge of a wall, the edge of a tree. It'll do that. And... I think one of the things you need to understand that's so important, 
and why biometric labs are used in, for car design. Um, I'm doing research now with a biometric lab at American University. Is it in its, It's not what an architecture school, it's in its business school, right? Why it's so important is because we know that 11 million bits of information are going to the human brain every second, 11 million bits. 10 million of them are visual, okay, information. 10 million, we're a hugely visual species, but only 50 to 60 of them are conscious information. Do you understand? That's incredible. So... Architecture and planning is rooted in the 20th century, but car design advertising is rooted in the 21st century, knowing that what you're really designing for is the unconscious brain. And where I really see this mastered is in the trillion dollar companies, companies like Apple. So I sometimes tell my students, study an Apple ad. They're selling the most sophisticated technology in the world. And what will they show you? Picture of a beautiful woman. (laughs) They'll have maybe eight fonts. Sometimes there's not even in the computer. There's just someone doing something funky and that says iPhone photo, you know. The reason they do that is because it takes 50 to 60,000 times longer to process text than the image. So they're selling the most sophisticated consumer technology in the world. In the, in most, the, in the most basic the, way. Hey, yeah. Yeah. You see what we're doing? Yeah. But they're... So showing that they mastered the human brain. So I went on the Apple website two months ago looking at for jobs, just for the fun of it. The first credential, PhD neuroscience. Yeah, that tells you something, doesn't it? And that tells you the difference between the licensed architects I talk to and the planners. The planners aren't as, aren't as lost as the architects. The architects are completely lost. They're kind of sealed in a silo, and they don't understand what Apple's doing. Apple's modeling the human experience with AI, buying facial expression analysis software. It's amazing what Apple's doing so that they can predict your experience before you know your experience when you look at your iPhone. Architects don't even know, don't know how to even talk about emotional experience. I was never, it's not mentioned on the licensing exam. <laughs> I think connecting the the propensity to hug the wall and the propensity to see faces in objects, those two both being a comforting aspect of human existence. Way before the 20th century, how did this affect how we built cities and how we built human habitat, basically? When we started coming together in civilizations and in, in in villages and towns and then ultimately growing into larger cities, how did these embedded reactions to our environment affect the way we built our own environment when we were the ones engineering and designing it? Our ancient brain architecture, which was always seeking safety and social engagement and narrative coherence, those kind of three things, social engagement, safety, and a narrative that's coherent because then you feel more safe, that was guiding our city design our city and building design. And so in this weird way, this is kind of wild, when you look at old cities, or even the Taj Mahal, what you're really seeing is your ancient brain architecture. It's kind of wild, but that's how it works. Because we don't see reality, we see the reality nature wants us to see, and it's I and brain, I and mind combined. So what you're really seeing is the pattern the brain wants you to take in that will most bolster a social group's survival. So a building has to have a face for social engagement. And its face should look a little bit different because if I saw a room just full of 50 people who looked exactly like Chuck, it'd be a little terrifying. <laughs> so it, it'd be, I wouldn't know how to behave, right? Would you? Exactly, no, you yeah. No, yeah, you wouldn't. So you need it a little bit different because we're built for individual one-on-one engagement. And that's what you get. I was in Copenhagen for the first time in my life, the most walkable city in the world in March of 2019. And I don't speak Danish. There was almost no signage. I knew exactly where to go. And I felt very safe on the street. Makes no sense. And I thought, wait a minute, something's wrong here. I feel more at home here than in any street in Boston. And I've been here six hours. Because it speaks primate. It speaks bipedal primate brain architecture. It doesn't stress me. Whereas what we build today 
denies the existence of, of what the ancient brain architecture. And the terrible thing that's happened is the car companies know all about our brain architecture and design specifically to it. And are always testing which design people like most. Whereas architects never test. Do you see the crisis? Yeah, I do. It's amazing because I got this tour of, of Pompeii almost 20 years ago now. And I remember being, on one sense, kind of, th this was back in my engineering days when I was a, a full-blown hardcore engineer. And I remember being impressed by the way things were set up and the, these, you know, very smart Pompeians who could drain their streets and figure out where things should go. It was only later when I started to really ponder the nuances of it that I recognized this as a habitat for humans that was designed kind of in many different dimensions to bring out the best in us or to bring out our, I, I don't want to just cite just virtue and community, but also just like comfort our kind of better behaviors, our, our, our sense of safety and security, uh, just the, the way these places were laid out, the way the streets lined up, the way the buildings faced each other, the way that they formed little areas of gathering. A lot of these things the new urbanists talk about today as design, um, but here they were in an ancient, ancient place. And I had to ask myself, why? why? Why would these people build in this way? It wasn't because they were trying to build cute new urbanist villages. There had to have been some like human, deeply human advantage to doing this. Is that the way you're looking at this? That's exactly right. What you're saying is exactly right. It was an expression of their love for each other, their desire to build community. And what's so amazing, we're not in Pompeii now, yet we can go and feel it when we visit. It was there. It was omnipresent, right? It was overwhelming. And you almost feel welcome. It's like my experience seeing the Taj Mahal 30 years ago. It made no sense. How could I feel more drawn to that? I, I, I'm not of that faith, or I didn't realize the story. Why does it work? It works because it fits what my ancient brain architecture, what the nervous system most needs to see to feel most calm and to feel most present. It acknowledges my need. It's like me inviting you to Thanksgiving dinner, and you know when you get here, the cutlery will be there, and the cranberry sauce will be there. I'm not going to say, oh, Chuck, you can pick that up in the, in, in, in the bathroom. I mean, that'd be crazy, <laughs> right? Right. No, it acknowledges your human needs. And the fact is human needs haven't changed since Pompeii. They haven't changed for 30,000 years. Well, I was standing amid ruins, and right. it felt more comfortable than streets that uh, were you know, fully formed and people lived in. Because it, it responded to the unconscious processing. So that's the big shift. That's the big paradigm shift. I don't know if you know this, but the Organization for Economic Community and Development, um, or is it Economic Cooperation Development, the OECD um, in London in 2012 announced that we're in a new age. We're in the age of biology. You can go online and see their announcement. They did a PDF, the new age of biology, the OECD. The 20th century is all about the age of engineering and physics. Chemistry and physics. The 19th, you know, the 19th century age of engineering, 20th century chemistry and physics. 21st century is biology. And the big paradigm shift in, in biology itself is in psychology when they're understanding the role of the right hemisphere in the brain, understanding the role of unconscious pr processing, the right hemisphere that doesn't really control speech, but it controls the brain really assessing its environment. So we're not logical, we're biological. And unfortunately, in architecture and planning, we talk as if we're logical, but that's not who we are. I want to ask you, and I think this was the part that I struggled with the most in your article, the, the mental disorders that gave us modern architecture. You started to talk about the damaged brains. That, that's the way I want to describe it. People who went off to war in World War I and were subjected to concussion bombings and trench warfare and just repeated trauma and stress in a way that humans had never experienced before. I mean, I think people aren't aware of how different World War I was than anything that came before it. You, you might have a terrible day on the battlefield and thousands of people might die, but the, then, then that was it. Like the, the thing was over. And in World War I, they came up with this term shell shock to describe people who had suffered weeks and weeks and weeks and sometimes months and, and over accumulated periods of time, years 
of artillery shelling and people getting blown to bits in front of them, friends, people they knew, climbing out of the trenches and getting mowed down by machine guns, millions and millions of people dead in a very short period of time. This had to have, you know, what we know today of PTSD and people who get PTSD in, in war who never even experienced combat, but still have PTSD symptoms. The World War I generation had to have been a deeply, deeply broken generation from a cognitive standpoint. Is this true? And, and, and what, I think, what's the takeoff then in terms of them rebuilding a society that now has automobiles and engines and petroleum and skyscrapers and, and all these other things that were never available to humans prior? Right. We are still trying to finally, 100 years later, really figure out what happened in World War I. And it's very difficult to look at trauma. But World War I was horrific. And the impact of World War I is contemporary. That's a quote from the um, PBS documentary that came out, The Great War, in 2018. It came out in 2018, um, said that, that, and it's very much true, it, as the centenary of World War I. The tragedy is we do know PTSD is real now. It wasn't diagnosed till 1980. So people like Walter Gropius, who founded the Bauhaus and really got the modern architecture program going at Harvard in the 1930s, taught there till the 1950s. There's a new book about him that just came out by Fiona McCarthy talking about how he had the heebie-jeebies, couldn't sleep at night, lasted well past middle age, had nightmares all the time fractured relationships with his wife, with his children. And understandably so, right? Yeah. Yeah, but they didn't, but uh, tragically he died in 1969 before he ever got the diagnosis he needed. If you read Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score, he's arguably the leading PTSD doctor in the world. And I just spoke at his 30th annual trauma conference um, I presented a poster there, actually. He explains really well in his book how what happens with PTSD, because the brain is so damaged, the brain has trouble even taking in complicated stimuli. Brain waves of people with PTSD are more jiggly than people without PTSD. So no wonder the Bauhaus, everything, everything became smooth and so simple and no faces it's because they literally couldn't see. Their brain didn't want them to see the complicated architecture of the past. In addition, Gropius's big thing was throw out the past, start from zero. Well, that's PTSD. In PTSD, right. you have fractured narrative. So what I could never understand when I traveled in Europe a lot in my 30s was why European old cities had such coherence even if the buildings were 400, 500 years apart. And modern parts of cities are incoherent and fragmented. It's a direct representation of the fragmented brains of the lost generation. What's so fascinating and what was recently pointed out to me is that in literature, we talk about Hemingway's PTSD and he's part of the lost generation. In music, classical music, there's composers like Elgar. And in I, I heard an Elgar piece a couple months ago and they said in the... Um, in, in, in the program, he suffered from, you know, World War I trauma right there. They, in literature and music, they talk about the work reflecting the trauma. In architecture, it's like, uh, hello. <laughs> Gropius, Mies, Van der Rohe, Neutra, all had PTSD. It's obvious by their work. You can see it in their work. Gropius is the one, and I think you had this in that article, where the house he designed for himself looks like a World War I pillbox, like a bunker. <laughs> His, his house looks exactly like a, a bunker. It's unbelievable. And it's worse than that. This is what gets so amazing. And you really have to un read some trauma literature on this. The section of the, of the study he built for himself, this is mind-blowing, for his office, right, is exactly the section of a World War I trench. So you could only see out. This is a, a ground floor office. You could only see out standing up. And then it's arranged that the World War I French was arranged with really smooth shelving so you could quickly get out the bombs or whatever you needed to throw. His shelving for his furniture is exactly the same, the entire thing. And then I recently, this is wild, but they just did recently built in, in Hudson, Massachusetts, a replica of a World War I trench at the Collings Foundation, which is all about recreating uh, important military paraphernalia to better understand our history. And so they actually rebuilt, it opened in May, a World War I trench 
and I went into it and it blew my mind. The soldiers would sleep in what are called dugouts within the trench. And to enter a dugout, you had a little kind of door that was like a little crate made with really simple bars of wood. Gropius's house in Lincoln has the same kind of entry door as a World War I direct dugout, the same kind of door frame. But that's when you study trauma, what the right hemisphere does is precisely record the trauma. So that's what we're really seeing is a tra precise representation of his traumatization in World War I. And then what happened, because it's not just Gropius who wanted to throw out the past, I think the world wanted to throw out the past in a way. It seemed simple and naive when you looked back at the world pre-World War I. Anyone growing up and then going through a traumatic experience looks back at themselves before that and says, I was a dumb person back then, or I was a simple, naive fool back then. And I kind of get that sense of wanting to throw it away, right? Like we're, we're now maybe mature is the wrong, but we're, we're no longer naive. Like we've been exposed to this and we're not going back. I think that's really interesting what you said. I think another thing happened, though. World War I was so powerful. It was the first industrialized world war. And then 20 years later, you get World War II, even more powerful. This whole idea of industrialized thinking is the way. Right, right. Everything has to be industrialized. So when my mother, you know, it's all about plastics and you don't breastfeed your children and DDT. Don't you remember DDT? Certainly, yes. Yep. Everything. You know, it was just the idea that better living through chemistry. Right. One of the things that made me really sad when I sat and pondered it, I wanted to ask you this because I want to know if, if my sorrow was improperly directed. I imagined these wounded people coming back, you know, even if they weren't physically wounded, these deeply like mentally wounded people coming back, going to the, the neighborhoods and the, the downtowns and the places that people had lived and having these places be essentially designed to be comforting and affirming for humans. They were human. It was human habitat. It was the place that we had designed for ourselves. And all of a sudden, finding that to be deeply disturbing to them. So not only did they suffer this trauma on the battlefield, but when they came back, the places that we all, or the people who would have been left, uh, who had not gone off, would have found innately comforting and soothing and affirming, now all of a sudden those also in many ways were traumatic to them because they're seeing faces, they're seeing all this stuff and it's busy and it's, you know, it's, it's difficult to process. That made me really sad. Is my sorrow misplaced or is that? No, I, I think that's amazing insight. I haven't quite thought of it that way, but I think that's actually an amazingly astute observation that what happens when you have PTSD, this is what happens. With no conscious control, you lose relational abilities. Remember, your brain is designed as a social engagement system. That is a quote from Bessel van der Kolk, the leading MD, PSTTSD doctor in the world, okay? Your brain's a social engagement system. After World War I, that social engagement system has effectively collapsed. So you can no longer understand why people find a farmhouse charming in Lincoln, Massachusetts. Gropius couldn't understand why the neighbor in the charming farmhouse was upset when he built the bunker. His brain- And can I just clarify? Because I, I hear what you're saying and I want to accentuate it because I, I, think, I think what you're saying is it's not that he rejected it, like could see two sides and rejected it. It's actually that his brain was wired in a way where he did not understand why someone would prefer that. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that's profound, right? That's profound. It's the, you're first of all, to accept that nature's preset, how she wants you to see reality is hard <laughs> because we have this idea that modern man, we control everything. No, we don't. <laughs> no, 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 we don't. But this idea. And so she's preset how she wants us to see things. And that's why old towns are strong towns. And the tragedy of PTSD is they no longer can connect uh, one of the tragic points of this new book on Gropius is that they talk about his second daughter, his adopted daughter, his first daughter died. His second daughter writes really poignantly how she never felt he saw her. That's classic PTSD. They actually lose neuronal connections to be able to do that. They actually can't see. And as a consequence, what happens is gaslighting. You understand the term gaslighting? Mm -hmm. That yeah. he, 
because he would never mirror a normal emotional response. So the farmer across the street who had the beautiful, charming farmhouse that had been there for 100 years, whatever, he couldn't understand why he'd be upset, so he ignored it. Right. And then he couldn't mirror his students. Right. Just like Pompeii architecture is a direct, and you can feel comfortable there several thousand years later, is a direct expression of of healthy human brain architecture, Modern architecture is a direct expression of PTSD, broken brain architecture, and the inability to healthily engage the social engagement system nature's designed us to have. So if I come home from World War I, and my brain is quite literally, we could say damaged, I think we could say rewired or altered, so where I perceive things differently than other human beings would and and humans had for, for thousands of years, and I'm an architect, what am I going to design then? Like what, what things would be soothing to me? What things would be like innately comforting and affirming and create great habitat with my brain structure? Actually, architectural historian, art historian out of the UC, UC system, his name's Welker, I believe. And he talked about how what that did, it happened with Neutra. He turned architecture inside out. So what becomes really important is the view inside looking out. Also, hiding the front door. Often, uh, modern architecture, you can't quite figure out where the door is. You don't want to do that. Also, I think there was this sense in being, they were so proud, like Le Corbusier, who didn't have PTSD, he had autism, but there was a sense of they wanted to use technologies, make buildings look like steamboats, which were, you know, a big deal in 1920. And Le Corbusier was a young man, right? So that was, there was, you know, better living through technology, better living through chemistry without realizing the human brain isn't technological. It's animal, it's biological. And here's the key point, Chuck. It's hardwired for attachment to really specific things. And if you can't attach, you get super stressed. I want to get to that in a sec, because that's, I feel like an important place that this conversation needs to end. But before we get to that, I want to make this connection between PTSD and and autism. I feel like we've come to know a lot more about autism. And I've kind of been taught, because I have all these uh, relatives that are teachers, to a degree about the autism spectrum and the fact that, you know, there's, there's different degrees and, and teachers are like to say, you know, we're all on the spectrum somewhere. I, I don't know if that is true or not, or what that means actually from a practical standpoint, but it seems pretty clear that there are brains, there are human brains that don't function the same as what I think we'd call like a standard brain function. They have different ways of perceiving things, different ways of interpreting things. I've found fascinating your photos of the eye movement um, where you show a, a building. Eye tracking, yeah. Can you describe how autism and PTSD are related? And then can you talk a little bit about how that manifests in the eye tracking work that has been done? Autism is a genetic disorder, and autism by researchers like Simon Baron Cohen out of the UK, he's referred to it as an overly male brain. I've also heard stats that like 25% of the professors in engineering are autistic, and overly male brain is really systems-oriented, really wants to put together lists. Like Le Corbusier put together lists, the five points of architecture. Did he ask anyone? Did he study? Did he do a post-occupancy evaluation? No. He just put it out there. That's it. (laughs) And he sold it, right? And so autism is one thing. And it just so happens that PTSD is something else. You can, autism now, this is mind-blowing. The shows, again, our new age of biology, they can now diagnose autism in an infant at two months based on how their eyes move. Okay, it's absolutely amazing. And then PTSD, they also use eye tracking. PTSD, I particularly read about PTSD and eye tracking with um, trying to give people treatment for PTSD, and they tell the degree that treatment is successful based on the way people's eyes will start to track differently. But what's interesting is in both cases, autism and PTSD harm the social engagement systems, different mechanisms for that. They harm the social engagement system with a healthy brain requires. And in both cases, there's face averse in autism and PTSD. 
And there can be an autism. It's really interesting. Often people with autism have very high IQs, not always, but some of them do. So there's hyperplasticity. So there's too much stimulation. Le Corbusier hated the bustling Paris street and all his images of the future city were, you know, from a plane and just cars and high rises, no connection. But that was a direct reflection. That lack of narrative coherence is a direct reflection of the broken the brain architecture of the autism spectrum person. It's really interesting. The autism diagnosis of Le Corbusier I've had done now by three UK MDs have corroborated it. And it's also autism is also noted in the most, I think, prolific biography, the 2008 of Le Corbusier, Nicholas Fox Weber um, on Le Corbusier. So Le Corbusier is autistic. He could not see, he couldn't relate normally and um, neurotypically. And, and Gropius, Mies, Neutra, uh, they had PTSD. So their life and their brain is completely fractured. And when I, I visited, I actually gave a talk at IIT, Illinois Institute of Technology, where Mies got his job. And the campus that he designed, completely fractured and fragmented. Makes no sense. No sense of where you are or place. Um, but he wouldn't notice because the PTSD brain is, is, is not about human connection. The need for narrative coherence is really interesting. Humans crave narrative. Much, as much as we crave water and food, we have an implicit need for narrative. It, it builds our social species connection. Um, it makes your Strong Towns website interesting, all the narratives you tell. We need narrative. But we need narrative also explicitly in the built environment. And modernism fractured that narrative, as did the car centrism. So we can't get narrative. So we go into our car, turn on the radio, listen to a podcast as we drive. <laughs> right. Talk a little bit about the the eye scan because I, th this to me was profound, and this also made me sad because when I looked at the eye tracking of people who are on the autistic spectrum, it was very different than what other people's eye tracking would be. It seemed to mirror a lot the PTSD eye tracking. Am I? Am I? Well, I'm not sure that's exactly right. I, I mean, I haven't studied it quite like that, but I think there are all this. They do know that in PTSD, you um, are face averse, just like with autism. People with autism, they meet a new person, they'll look away. And PTSD, they just, they, what happens with PTSD, I've known people with PTSD, um, and they just can't understand. This, this is the key thing. With PTSD, you become disembodied you stop really inhabiting your body because the trauma was too great. And so you can't understand another body the same way. Interesting about Pompeii is you feel when you're in there, the embodiment of the people who are died thousands of years ago in the way they corrected that building, in the way they, they put together those streets that are still left. Whereas in modern architecture, it's all about disembodiment. You walk down a street and you wonder, am I supposed to be here? Is this really meant for me or am I supposed to be in my car? You can't feel community. And in fact, it creates streets. Nicholas Boy Smith has done fascinating studies where um, having people stand in front of a traditional building and having people stand in front of like a blank, blank building, a modern building, and saying they just lost their wallet or they need help. People are more likely to help someone in front of the traditional building than in front of the blank, faceless building. It's crazy. That's mind-blowing. Yeah. But, but it, may, it matters because, remember, the unconscious brain is taking in all this stimuli. It's saying it's not safe. It's saying it's not socially engaging. So you shouldn't be there. So even when someone asks you, hey, by the way, do you have an extra quarter uh, in front of one building like Newbury Street in Boston with its 19th century housing, you'll say, oh, sure. In front of another building uh, like the new downtown all glass skyscrapers, probably not. When I was a kid, my parents took me to, to Disney World for the first time when I was like, 11, 12. And I was, I was blown away with it, but I, I don't think I was blown away with it in the way that maybe a lot of kids are. Cause for me, it wasn't about rides and entertainment and eating. I was blown away at the place. It was really the first place. And I've, I've explained this to my wife since I've explained it like this. It was the first place I was in where I felt comfortable, where I felt like the world around me was designed in a, a affirming and comfortable way. I'm kind of a Disney junkie. In fact, I just had a chance the last weekend, I was in California for some work I was doing and I was able to spend Saturday with a friend of mine at Disneyland. And for me, I just like walking around. I just like being there. I'm not a person who generally likes crowds. I'm not a person who generally likes the bustle and busyness. But when I'm in that space, 
I love it. The more people, the merrier. I think it's beautiful. I love it. I find it very comforting. The thing that I think made me the saddest was to ponder how someone who would suffer from PTSD or someone who would have autism may actually be agitated by the spaces that I would find comforting. And then vice versa, they might actually find the spaces that I find incoherent and displeasing and and uncomfortable to be places that for them gave them a sense of, of comfort. How off am I on that interpretation? I, 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 I'm. No, no, no. I think it's. I think first of all, I think I think that's really interesting. I think first of all, when I give my talks, I often show Disneyland. Yeah. And I, I think it's not so, so ironic that Disney, I think, came up with the concept in the '50s as America was moving to the suburbs, and he modeled Disneyland after his hometown street. Yeah, in, in Missouri, southern, right? Yeah. Missouri in the southern, he modeled it exactly because he remembered what it was like going down a boy as a boy there without cars. He brought that back, and what's so amazing is Disneyland Tokyo is just the same. Disneyland Paris is just the same. I just learned that in California, you pay what one hundred fourteen dollars a day to get in or something. It's, yeah, it's to not experience a main street that should be free. Chuck. It should be everywhere, right? No, I that that it. And, that, and he, he, Disney was brilliant. He saw what was happening. Mm-hmm. He, and uh, uh, it's it's just terrifying what we've done. We've taken that community experience and we've commercialized it. Right. Well, we've made it where that's really the only place you you can experience it. There are a few other places, but but for the most part, that's not. And and it seemed to be like that was the default. I mean, he. He, he basically took and made a museum out of human history is what he did. Exactly did. That's exactly what he did. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting. All I've studied the buildings along Disneyland. Anyway, he characterized them a little bit, but they basically are all faces and there's a lot of detail and there's hierarchy and you feel very safe. And what's so interesting to me is you get people, families intergenerationally will go there. Whereas the normal places don't invite that maybe a little bit them all but it's not the same (laughs) so a lot of the environment that we live in today i have you know described to my kids to my family to my colleagues as we're out walking around i'll say the word that comes to my mouth is incoherent and they don't understand that because they don't think of it in this way they've in a sense, grown used to it. Like it is, it, it's the neighborhood we live in. It's the place we live in. And I'll say, well, that that's, it's incoherent. And I, for a long time, really until I met the new urbanists and were able to kind of embed in that narrative and understand, cause I'm not an architect. I'm not a, you know, an urban designer per se, or at least I wasn't back in those days to have that language to be able to describe places around me before I had that, I could just called everything incoherent. Like this is incoherent. Like this doesn't make sense. How neurotic have we become as a society by living in places that are largely incoherent to our primordial wiring? How difficult is it for us to exist as humans in places that, from a habitat standpoint, kind of undermine everything that our body is wired to want in terms of human habitat? Can I ask you a question? Are you left-handed? Yeah. There you go. I got it. <laughs> I'm basically ambidextrous. I write with my left hand, but I throw with my right. I kick with my left. That's your right brain telling you it's incoherent. Okay. And I'm left-handed too. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It, and I, t- I knew something was wrong. I knew something was wrong. Yeah. I knew something was wrong. And I went to architecture school. I never talked to them. And then I said, something's got to be wrong. So I started talking to planners and then I started seeing what's wrong. And then I figured it out that we built our society around PTSD and cars, which doesn't fit what the human brain and body needs. Now, you need to know that according to a Russian evolutionary biologist, the male body is hardwired to walk 12 miles a day, the female nine. When you don't get that, that's one of the reasons, there are many reasons, you know, why Americans are now 31st in longevity, why we have such obesity, such loneliness problems as well. And, and such a high carbon footprint per capita. Uh, it's, it's basically what we built is completely unsustainable. It doesn't fit our evolution. And, and, and your, your intuition, it is incoherent. And what people like Jan Gell, the Copenhagen, the famous Copenhagen planner, has said is Americans are now used to a very low standard. 
And when they experience Disneyland, they think, oh, well, that's what you pay for. That's like two days a year. We'll go there. And that's that's one hundred fourteen dollars a day. They were used to a low standard. Then in addition, we let the car companies run our, our society, essentially, petroleum car companies. Unfortunately, that's not evolutionarily sustainable. It can't work. Has this messed us up? When I am have that incoherent feeling? That's absolutely right. I get agitated. I get yes. cranky. I get antisocial. I find myself retreating into a more introverted kind of disposition. I become, in a sense, like a little more neurotic. And I just wonder if there is a, if that is an anomaly or if that is a, a, a wider spread trend that the research on cognition would suggest might be happening. Yeah, no, they know it. I think they, I think there is a trend in planning. And I also see a little bit in architecture that we got to start, you know, they're saying we have to start designing for human health more. And, yeah, and, but and, they often mean just having sidewalks and trails. And I'm like, no, it's it's not, it's I so know. much more than that. I get it. They don't, because they're not all left-handed, right? Uh, Maybe, <laughs> they yeah. Don't quite, they don't quite get it, but at least they're starting to talk about it. I mean, human health was never really mentioned in my architectural education, nor in my licensing exam. They, they All I cared about was fire safety and the uh, width and dimension of stair treads. But uh, human health wasn't mentioned. Human psychological health and emotional health. That's a big shift, too, that we're suddenly talking about emotions, even in schools. Uh, colleges have therapy dogs at exam time. They didn't have that when we were in college, you know. That's a huge shift. So I think I think you're right. I think um, it's the way we design matters, and we need to do a better job. I think we're still just understanding the impact of World War One. You can't really fix a problem until you see what it is. We're started to ask the right questions. And, and, and I think, I mean, I don't want to be negative. I think we'll get there once we see what the problem is. Right. And this is the 100-year anniversary of the armistice. I mean, that tells you how dramatic that was, right? Right. No, it's, it's, just, it's just completely huge. Mm-hmm. Um, Where do we go from here? I feel like this is a young conversation, a young exploration. Like you say, this is maybe the century of biology and, and maybe 80 years from now, we'll look back with many more answers uh, than we are going to be able to reach today. But where, where do you think this conversation should go next? I think it's, it's just really exciting. We have to stay curious. We know things about PTSD we didn't even know before. Some of the insights in PTSD, you have to understand, being able to even see inside the brain with functional magnetic resonance imaging, that came online in 1994. Now, how many years ago was that? So a lot of this stuff is not even 20 years old or barely, and it's getting, it's now getting out of the si- silo of medicine and moving on into other fields. So it's going to take a little while, but it's actually really exciting to be a young person now and to do these studies. And I'm trying to work with a person at the American University Lab to try to, like, do eye tracking in architecture, you know, widely so they can understand that not just the car companies should be using these really sophisticated techniques to understand people. Um, planners and architects need to too. I think it's, it's just a really exciting time because I also think your intuition is dead on. And for you to realize that you followed that intuition, you didn't dismiss it, you followed it. Look at what you can do. That nature's telling you something's wrong. You, and she's telling you that for a reason. And now you're listening to it and we're having this conversation and it's, and it's going to get exciting. And this is great. <laughs> right. The more we learn about the way the brain is wired and the more we learn about those kind of innate tendencies we have, I, th- I think the more in some ways we can appreciate how similar we all are. You can take people from Polynesia and people from South America and people from, you know, Inuit cultures, and you find that 99.9% something, we're the same. We are wired the same. We do things the same. We have the same reaction. On the other hand, like the more we realize too, that like we're designed to be kind of tribal. We're designed to see people around us. Uh, that are like us. And, and, and there's a lot of, I think, discomfort too that comes from knowing more about how we're wired. I think more knowledge is better. And I, I hope that we can embrace this idea that we can uncover a lot of, of human beauty if we are open to thinking about these things. Well, that's right. And that's why your podcast is so important. It's all about curiosity. Well, thank you. <laughs> I, I really appreciate that. Your website, The Genetics of Design, I didn't realize was out there. 
and I've been reading it now and really enjoying it. Is there any other place besides the the book, Cognitive Architecture, the website that you would send people if they want more information on these topics and, and to follow along more closely? Well, I'll definitely go to the Genetics of Design. Definitely contact me. I'd be happy to give more talks. Um, we need to get more people involved. The more kinds of brains collaborate. Remember, we have a social engagement system. So we're really built for collaboration. So me with you, you're giving me ideas. We can spread the word that we can build a world that's more coherent and that uses less resources and that's sustainable. Also, in a certain way, you end up respecting nature in a different kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> Because <laughs> I've always had, you know, as an engineer, you're kind of taught to overcome nature. And you're also taught then, in a way, because of the systems we've set up, uh, the environmental people tend to be combatants in that. And you wind up in this space. And I've always considered myself a conservationist and a nature lover. And, you know, I grew up on a farm and, and I feel very close to it. Your book and, and some other work in this area has open me up to that again. And I, I, I really appreciate it. Well, I look forward to doing next steps with you. We got to do, you know, cross country collaborations. It's a really exciting time. And it's so important that we get the word out and like, like these kind of podcasts you're doing. It's great. Thank you so much. Chuck. Well, let's you and I keep in touch. And I'm so thankful that we were able to connect for everyone listening. The book is cognitive architecture and Sussman is who I've been chatting with. Justin Hollander was your co-author in this, and you can get that anywhere. You might have a little bit, I, I'll just say this, it was a little bit more expensive than I thought it would be um, when I logged on. Buy the dang thing. You, you will not regret it. This is like one of the most important books I've read in my life. So don't let uh, like a 30 some dollar sticker price I'm so sorry. We're trying to work with Routledge about that. I know. I'm publishing a book now too, and I know how that works. You're trying to get ideas out, and they're trying to have a business model, and those don't always work directly. So I, I just want to encourage people, it's definitely worth it. Like Get beyond that and just buy the darn thing. I Like I said, I bought many and passed them out to people because I think the ideas are so important. So thank you, Anne, for taking the time. So nice to see you. Strong towns. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich, it's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.